Hello and welcome to the May the 4th UMass IPM Fruit Loop, the podcast component of the UMass Extension Fruit Team's Healthy Fruit Newsletter. Our goal is to keep you in the loop with matters of the fruit. I hate to disappoint you, but I have exactly zero May the 4th dorktastic jokes for you right now. I feel like I've failed you all. Well, you never know. I may come up with something good on the fly as we move along. So I was listening to another podcast today, you know, to make sure I'm doing this thing the right way and realized while I always tell you my name, I never tell you who I am and I probably should, although realistically all like 19 of you who listen to this probably are well aware of who I am. But just in case, here goes. I am Hawkeye, also less interestingly known as Liz Garofalo. I am an extension educator with the University of Massachusetts fruit team specializing in IPM. And I have a special interest in pest forecasting. You may have already picked up on that, wink wink. And cider fruit, especially apples. Today, we will cover our usual round of current fruity events, starting with degree day accumulations. Current degree day accumulations are for the UMass Cold Spring Orchard, in Belchertown, Massachusetts, and are collected from NUA. Using a base of 43 BE, as of May 3rd, we have accumulated 385 degree days. With a base 50 BE, as of May 3rd, we have accumulated 189 degree days. According to the NUA degree days prediction, by May 10th, next Monday, we will have reached 454 degree days, base 43 BE. Macintosh petal fall should be occurring anywhere from 439 to 523 degree days, base 43 BE. Current bud stages as of May 3rd, 2021 at the UMass Cold Spring Orchard are as follows. Macintosh apple is at bloom. Honeycrisp apple is at king bloom. Gala apple is at king bloom plus. Crispy pear is at bloom plus and Red Heaven Peach is at Petalfall. Of course, you can go to the UMass Extension website and see more of the bud stages pictures. Up next, we have upcoming pest events. I'm going to shorten the list I cover here from what you get in the Healthy Fruit link as going over them all becomes a tad monotonous for you to hear and for me to say. Also, we have covered the events I am dropping off in recent loops. So if you are positively dying to hear them, you can go back and take a listen. Don't worry, I won't cut anything new or timely out of the list. So upcoming pest events, degree days, base 43 BE, oriental fruit moth first flight peak occurs anywhere from 331 to 533 degree days. Codling moth first catch occurs anywhere from 395 to 562 degree days. Spotted tentiform leaf miner mines should be forming anywhere from 367 to 641 degree days. White apple leafhopper nymphs on apples should be present anywhere from 302 to 560 degree days. I did actually just see those little guys hopping around out in the grass the other day. Macintosh petal fall should occur anywhere from 439 to 523 degree days. Our upcoming meetings, don't forget, of course, we've got one tomorrow night, that's Thursday, May 6th, at 5.30 p.m. on Zoom. 
You do need to register in advance for this meeting. You can do that by going to ag.umass.edu forward slash fruit and click on the events tab. You'll see the link for the meeting there. One pesticide recertification credit will be available. But big fanfare and drum roll, here's the big news, y'all. Pending final UMass approval and continued improvements in COVID test results, the UMass Extension Fruit Team will be holding its first in a while in-person toilet meeting. This is scheduled for May 19th, 2021 at the Cold Spring Research Orchard. Details will be forthcoming. Since this is our first in-person meeting in a while, please bear in mind there will be some new protocols in place. For example, there will be no food available. The university will require masks and social distancing. Pre-registration will be required and we will be requiring a symptom screening. We'll be doing our best to make this a smooth process and are looking forward to seeing you all. Like really, it's been too long. We miss you a bunches. Now it's time to take a deep dive into the cool waters of the way John sees it with the way I see it. John says another cool, wet bloom. Macintosh full bloom at the UMass Cold Spring Orchard is, well, right about now, about Honeycrisp is at King Bloom. The weather forecast does not look like it is going to make things move any faster. John says he expects apple bloom will last a week, if not longer. He says we've had one or two days of good bee activity on open flowers and thinks it's likely enough to set a crop. But, he says, he's not rushing out to bloom thin with a caustic thinner this year, so he won't bore you with the details of the pollen tube growth model. The big talk about chemical thinning now seems to be an NAA or NAD application at bloom. Four ounces or four to eight ounces per hundred gallons dilute tree row volume respectively. Mostly this is to initiate the return bloom process, particularly important to do on biennial varieties such as Honeycrisp and Fuji. John says he is missing in-person twilight meetings, but the next best thing, he guesses and says maybe it's arguable, is our Bloom Zoom twilight meeting Thursday, tomorrow, May 6th at 5.30 p.m. He says expect some wisdom from Dwayne Green about bloom and post-bloom chemical thinning, some pest management updates from Jaime Pinero and Dan Cooley, a little bit of grape info from Elsa Petit, and maybe apple fruit thinning myths, true or false, from John himself. Maybe, he says, unless it's 7 p.m. when everyone else is done. John questions some age-old wisdom here about cider apples being late bloomers and provides the example of Redfield, which was at Petal Fall on 3 May at the UMass Orchard. And that is how John sees it. All right, let's get dried off and head to the couch because the doctor is in. Dr. Jaime Pinero, that is. Let's take a peek into the wide world of insects with this week's entomology psychology. The following Pinero Lab weekly report details insect pest captures in monitoring traps at the Cold Spring Orchard in Belchertown, Massachusetts. This information is for the period of April 27 through May 3. A whopping total of 0.08 average tarnished plant bugs were captured in unbaited white sticky cards. There were no applesaw fly trapped for this time period. There was an average of 0.33 plum curculio captured at this time. There were 26 oriental fruit moth caught in one of those pheromone delta traps. 
Only one tarnish plant bug was captured at the Cold Spring Orchard for the past seven days, and only one was captured in a trap in one out of nine monitored orchard blocks throughout Massachusetts. So there's your 0.08. After a long wait, the first plum curculio was captured on April 28th by an odor-baited pyramid trap at Cold Spring Orchard. Up to that date, 277 degree days, base 43, not using BE, were accumulated. Based on daily weather forecast for the next 10 days, very low levels of PC activity are expected. Biofix for oriental fruit moth was set on April 26th at Cold Spring Orchard. For the past seven days, a significant increase in captures of OFM have been recorded. The performance of insecticides that are available to control plum curculio depends on the product characteristics. Conventional insecticides, such as organophosphates and pyrethroids, work primarily as lethal contact poisons on PC adults. Avant, which has an active ingredient of endoxicarb, has been adopted by a good number of growers for PC control. It also works primarily by lethal activity, but its efficacy increases if ingested. Neonicotinoids are highly lethal to PC via contact for the first several days after application. But as these systemic compounds move into plant tissue, they can also protect fruit from PC injury via egg laying and feeding deterrence. According to Dr. John Wise from Michigan State University, if a rescue treatment is needed, organophosphates and neonicotinoids can provide curative action up to two weeks after PC infestation. Dr. Pinero provides a lengthy table summarizing relative efficacy of non-pyrethroid insecticides for petal fall of apple and shuck split of peach applications against these pests. However, unfortunately, this is another one of those things that you're going to have to go to Healthy Fruit to look at because I just can't read through this. Lots of good information is in there, though, so it's worth your time. It also includes some information on the EIQ. That's the Environmental Impact Quotient which was developed by Dr. Joseph Kovac and other collaborators in 1992. The EIQ was created to provide growers with data regarding the environmental and health impacts of their pesticide options so they can make better informed decisions regarding their pesticide selection. The higher the EIQ value, the greater the negative impact of a pesticide. Well, that was a short and sweet jaunt into the wide world of insects, and now we're going to go straight into diseases, which is not, I assure you, going to be quite so short and sweet. Sorry about that, guys. Usually the case, the diseases section is brought to you by myself and Dr. Dan Cooley. This week, Dan did a really great deep dive on using the Fireblight model in NUA, so uh, sit tight. We're going to work through that. After a slow start, Apple scab has become a real threat. The RIMPRO output shows this clearly, but all you really need to know is that because the red infection line, that's the RIM value, the relative infection measure, goes well above extreme risk, the infection period last week and the one going on now, May the 4th, are serious. This is the time to use the effective systemic fungicides mixed with the low label rates of either Mancozeb or Captan. Look at the April 13th healthy fruit, or you could go back to the April 13th fruit loop for details on those fungicides. Monday's ascospore counts showed a total of 2,428 ascospores. Spores observed on the Petri plate assay had germinated overnight. Rimpro, Nua, and we agree, we are in the thick of primary apple scab season. Right now, fire blight is not in the forecast. Recent NUA and RIMPRO charts from Belchertown look good. If forecast temperatures for Belchertown stay steady, this will hold true at least through this coming Sunday, May 9th. Hey, that's Mother's Day. 
Now, that's not to say that we are out of the woods as far as fire blight is concerned. As long as there are open flowers, there is a risk of bloom infections. If temperatures warm up, risk of fire blight can change quickly. Keep an eye on Nua or Rimpro. Late bloomers, like some of my favorite cider varieties, and cultivars prone to straggling bloom will be at risk even if almost everything else has passed petal fall. Ever wonder why it seems so complicated to make a decision about fire blight? Well, it's because it is a complicated situation. Fire blight, the disease, is at the center of an overall picture of the many factors we consider when deciding whether to spray, strep more often than not, for this disease during bloom. Making this decision requires more than just knowing that fire blight is out there. Of course, there's always some around. What's more important is how much fire blight bacteria is around, especially at bloom. Erwinia amylivora has a broad temperature range in which it can operate. In vitro, lab studies, the minimum temperature for growth ranges anywhere from 38 degrees Fahrenheit to 54 degrees Fahrenheit. The maximum temperatures have been reported to range from 95 degrees Fahrenheit to 99 degrees Fahrenheit, with optimum growth occurring between 70 and 82 Fahrenheit. 65 degrees Fahrenheit has long been considered the baseline temperature for infection to occur. Fire blight requires open blooms, and often, even before we see those open blooms, temperatures may have occurred that are sufficient to drive the development of epiphytic bacterial populations. These are bacterial populations that exist outside of the host. Given open blossoms are present and Erwinia has been moved to receptive stigmas, population growth will continue there. Next, bacterium will wash down into the flower's nectaries. Nectaries are glands occurring on many plant tissues, in this case, the base of the flower, which then hitch into the host's vascular system. This washing down can occur as a result of a rain event or a heavy dew. More recent information also suggests that a spray application or even high relative humidity are able to cause this as well. Many, but not all, of these moving pieces are incorporated into the decision support systems we have at our disposal these days. While they give us useful information, to some extent the decision support systems are a work in progress. NUA, as the Network for Environment and Weather Applications, is the most commonly used DSS in our area. DSS is just short for decision support systems because decision support systems is a mouthful. Anyway, so new is the most commonly used DSS in our area. It shows two different risk values for fire blight, one from the Washington State Cougar Blight model and one called infection potential. That's based on the epiphytic infection potential from the University of Maryland's Mary Blight model. Both models have an involved set of calculations that go into estimating risk. Newell boils these down to report four risk levels, low, moderate caution, high, and extreme infection. In addition, for each model, NUA gives numbers that represent risk. These are based on degree hours over the previous four days, so they're labeled four-day DH. In cougar blight, whether those numbers mean risk is low or extreme or something in between depends on what the fire blight situation was or is like in, as Mr. Rogers would say, the neighborhood. There are three options, no fire blight, fire blight occurred, and fire blight is active now. For the middle value, fire blight was in the neighborhood last year. The four day DH number has to hit 150 to reach moderate risk, 300 for high risk, and 500 for extreme risk. In infection potential, or EIP, AKA Mary blight, the risk and numbers are more difficult to explain. Thank goodness we have Dan to explain them for us because wow, this stuff is deep. So, like I was saying, the risk and numbers are more difficult to explain and aren't worth discussing here in detail. <laughs> anyway, 
So we're not going to really go into that right now. Unlike cougar blight, though, those numbers don't directly translate to risk. Risk basically depends on whether flowers are open, a calculation of different degree hours and degree days using different base temperatures, and whether there's any wetting. Ultimately, risk can be moderate or even high whenever flowers are open. There's some wetting and it's above 60 degrees Fahrenheit. It doesn't take the bacterial population, the EIP, into account, so EIP can be very low but the infection potential, the risk, will still show as high. However, as a general rule, unless EIP reaches 100 or higher, risk is actually low or at worst, moderate. This can make it hard to interpret what you should do, spray or not. Sometimes we get a situation where cougar blight and the EIP in NUA disagree. In this case that we saw on May 3rd, cougar blight shows low to moderate, caution risk while EIP shows moderate to high risk. So should you spray strep or not? I mean, seriously though, you look at the table and see a series of colored boxes. This low EIP value is contained in a red box. The other boxes are green and yellow. I don't know about you, but when I see those three colors, I think green, good, red, bad, yellow, pay attention. Sometimes, as was the case on May 3, when looking at NUA's dual fire blight output of cougar blight and the infection potential, Mary blight, they disagree about risk. On May 3, the numbers used to estimate bacterial populations, four-day DH and EIP value, were both very low. But because the average temperature was estimated to be over 60 degrees Fahrenheit, the infection potential, Mary blight, said risk was high. It probably wasn't. And by the next day, when the average temperature was actually shown to be lower than 60 degrees Fahrenheit, the potential is moderate. In this case, growers might have made a decision to spray strep when none was probably needed. That wastes some time and money, but doesn't put the trees at risk. But it might increase your risk of fire blight resistance to strep. The more dangerous situation is on the other side, where cougar blight and or the EIP say that risk is only moderate, but the four-day DH and the EIP are extremely high. In a situation like that, a little moisture or even high relative humidity can lead to infection. A situation like that happened last year and some folks didn't spray strep when they should have. It's important to know something about those numbers in the two fire blight risk estimates and not just read the words and see the colors in NUA's risk evaluation. Wow, now that was the deep dive of the week. Big, huge thanks to Dan Cooley for sharing all of that with us. That provides us with an awful lot of information to think about in terms of fire blight management and how to use these models to manage it effectively. We'll take a quick little skip through notes from the field just to let you know that Scylla nymphs are on the scene. These are early instars and are accompanied on the leaves by eggs. If you would have, if you have had issues with Scylla in the past, it's a good time to get out and scout with your hand lens or other magnification tool and see where things are in your orchard. Summer oil, 1% rate, applications are an effective way to manage Scylla and keep resistance development at bay. The overlapping generations of this pest make them highly prone to resistance development. All right, get you a glass of Kool-Aid. We're gonna have a sit in with the horticult with this week's horticulture section. This just in from Dr. Dwayne Green on bloom and petal fall thinning. Flower development has been erratic, proceeding in fits and starts. However, it does appear that development in many orchards is approaching or will be at full bloom this week. The bloom and petal fall stages are excellent times to start your chemical thinning. Bloom is a time when orchardists frequently do not choose to thin. At this point, the bloom period has not yet occurred completely, so there is uncertainty about how favorable it will be for bees to fly. 
Also, the potential for frost still exists. However, it should be noted that the sooner you can start the thinning process, the better chance you have of influencing and encouraging return bloom. There are several options available to use at bloom. Petal fall is a thinner time of application that most orchardists choose. The pollination period is known, and there is a reduced chance of frost. If a bloom thinning spray was not applied, a petal fall application of a thinner becomes very important. With one exception, carbaryl, the same hormone thinners can be used at either bloom or petal fall. When selecting a thinner, it should be emphasized that thinners are not as potent when used at bloom as when they are applied at the traditional 7 to 14 millimeter stage. A rough rule of thumb is that thinners applied at bloom and petal fall are about 50% less effective at thinning as they are if they were applied at the 7 to 14 millimeter stage. NAA has been used by growers for over 75 years. There is some comfort in using a compound that has passed the test of time. Dr. Green says he routinely suggests application of NAA at 10 to 12 parts per million. He has never overthinned a tree using these rates. Lower rates will be less effective. NAA at 10 to 12 parts per million could be applied to a broad spectrum of cultivars. Amidthin is a thinner that has garnered increased interest from growers recently. Amidthin is a weaker thinner than NAA, and it rarely, if ever, overthins. It has a reputation for being a reasonably consistent thinner. The label allows application of up to 8 ounces per 100 gallons. Dr. Green says he does not recommend using a rate any lower than 8 ounces per 100 gallons. Editor's note, that's John, Amidthin W is not currently registered in Rhode Island. Ethafon may be used as an early thinner. The recommended rate is 300 parts per million or 1 pint per 100 gallons. Some have applied it at a rate as high as 400 parts per million with good results. It may not be as consistent as other thinners, but it remains a viable option. Since it produces ethylene, it may also be used to enhance return bloom. Historically, carbaryl has been the most popular thinner in New England. Unfortunately, it is very toxic to bees, so it cannot be used until the bees are removed from the orchard at petal fall. There's an asterisk here, we'll get it back around to that. Carbaryl is unusual as a thinner in that its effectiveness is concentration independent. It is routinely used at one pint to one quart per hundred gallons. Carbaryl is an excellent choice to combine with either NAA or Emidthin at petal fall to enhance thinning activity. Dr. Green says he likes the addition of carbaryl with Emidthin to enhance the thinning activity of Emidthin. Petal fall is a somewhat nebulous term. Dr. Green considers it to be a period of time between the time petals fall from the flowers and when the receptacle starts to grow. Early in this period, the receptacle is not growing or growing very slowly, so there is little carbohydrate demand exerted by the fruit. Consequently, Dr. Green generally does not pay much attention to the carbohydrate model during this period of time. However, when fruit grow to five to six millimeters, the carbohydrate model plays an important role in making thinning decisions. Bloom and petal fall thinner applications are an important component in a comprehensive thinning program. This opportunity to help regulate crop load should not be missed. The real danger in bloom and petal fall thinning is not over thinning, but not thinning enough. Editor's note, and this is the asterisk here, from John, that is, B, B-E-E, haha, very careful when using carbaryl at petal fall. Note the B caution on the carbaryl 4L label as follows. B caution, may kill honeybees and other bees in substantial numbers. 
This product is highly toxic to bees exposed to direct treatment or residues on crops or weeds in bloom. Notifying beekeepers within one mile of the treatment area at least 48 hours prior to product application will allow them to take additional steps to protect their bees. Limiting application to times when bees are least active, in other words, within two hours of sunrise or sunset, will minimize risk to bees for crops in bloom, except soybean and corn. Do not apply this product to target crops or weeds in bloom. Observe bee caution. On apples, avoid using during the period from full bloom until 30 days after full bloom, unless thinning is desired. Speaking of being bee wise, our guest article covers just that and is entitled Honeybee Management in Tree Fruit Orchards. It was authored by Tim Lawrence of Washington State University's Extension, Island County, and Tori Schmidt, Washington Tree Fruit Research Commission, on March 23, 2018, and was updated April 14, 2019. This article was reprinted from treefruit.wsu.edu. Most people in agriculture understand the crucial role cultivated honeybees play in the production of specialty crops across the country, particularly in the tree nut and tree fruit industries of the West Coast. Without a large influx of these key pollinators every spring, Washington growers would set only a small fraction of the apples, pears, cherries, and other stone fruit necessary for commercial viability. Historic advice on managing honeybees from experts like Free, Mayer, and Delaplane is still largely relevant. But with today's modern production systems, a new generation of growers, and continually advancing research, we offer these updated guidelines for current best management practices for orchardists renting commercial bees. Before considering specific issues about using hives in orchards, some understanding of basic honeybee biology can be instructive. A healthy colony in the spring and summer typically consists of a queen bee, several hundred drones, males, and many thousands of workers, females. The queen lays the eggs, the drone's principal role is to mate with virgin queens, and the workers perform a complex but well-organized myriad of tasks, including foraging for pollen, nectar, and water, caring for the larvae and queen, producing honey, maintaining the hive environment, cleaning the hive, and protecting the hive. All members of the colony are crucial, but it is the activity of the worker bees that is of greatest interest to growers who want their crops to be pollinated. Maintaining a healthy pollinator agro-eco environment is one of the most important things growers can do to ensure optimal pollination. If the hive is healthy and presented with an opportunity for good foraging, the colony will respond with more efficient foraging activity, which ultimately benefits both the colony and the orchardist. As more pollen and nectar is brought into the hive, the queen is stimulated to lay more eggs. In response to the nutritional demands of more larvae, the worker bees are stimulated to collect even more pollen and nectar. Colonies under stress, however, will not forage effectively, resulting in reduced fruit set. In addition to things like pests and diseases, stress can include exposure to pesticides, nutritional deficiencies, and a lack of clean water. It is very much in the grower's interests. It is very much in the interests of the grower, therefore, to minimize stress in the hives regarding factors they can control, such as providing a diversity of floral sources, ensuring adequate supplies of clean water, and limiting pesticide exposure. These simple steps will increase the likelihood that as many as a third of the population of a healthy and productive hive will be focused on foraging activities. Bear in mind that foraging bees don't really care if you produce a lot of fruit. They're only interested in gathering the resources to support the nutritional needs of the colony. Bees need a diversity of pollen and nectar to meet these nutritional requirements and will change their foraging behavior to satisfy deficiencies. Not all pollen or nectar contain all of the essential nutrients and Protein content of pollen can vary widely. Bees prefer to work within a half mile of the hive, but will fly up to six miles to forage in search of what they need. 
The more time and energy bees expend in lengthy flights to meet nutritional demands, the fewer the number of available bees to visit your fruit trees. Growers can do themselves a favor by making sure their bees don't have to work too hard to find fresh water and a variety of flowers to provide diverse sources of carbohydrates and protein. The cultivation of a range of flowering plants such as borage, sunflower, poppy, clover, alfalfa, and even dandelions in and around your orchard will also encourage the development of native pollinator populations, including wild bees. These alternative species often provide important supplementation to pollination services from honeybees because they often forage in cooler, windier conditions and work orchard rows in different patterns than your rented bees. Even better, research has shown that the presence of competing foragers alters honeybee foraging behavior, increasing activity between rows and within tree canopies. Most experts point to the Varroa destructor mite as the primary cause of dwindling honeybee populations. Ongoing research projects suggest that overwintering of hives in controlled atmosphere cold storage can kill off the mites without harming the bees. WSU scientists have been rearing bees bred in part from semen collected from wild bees in the Tianshan Mountains of Kazakhstan, the home of vast forests of wild apple tree species. Gotta break in here for a minute. How cool is that project to be a part of? <laughs> Anyway, uh, so this project promotes the genetic diversity of germplasm available to bee breeders, potentially producing new populations of pollinators that may offer some advantages to tree fruit growers. Work led by USDA ARS scientists in Utah indicates that Osmia lignaria, that's the blue orchard bee or orchard mason bee, can be established in commercial orchards, creating a native population pollinators that work in cold, windy conditions and help supplement pollination services provided by rented Italian honeybees. Work conducted at Michigan State University and the University of California has demonstrated that providing a diversity of floral sources can increase the diversity of pollinators within an orchard. This diversity of pollinators changes the foraging behavior of honeybees to benefit the grower. Research from the UK, Israel, and elsewhere has demonstrated the need for a diversity of floral sources to meet the nutritional demands for bees. This type of research is critical to ensure the optimization of pollination activities of bees. Recent modeling work by USDA ARS scientists in Arizona suggests that as much as 80 to 90% of fruit set in apple and almond orchards occurs not because a single bee picks up pollen from a pollinizer, like a crab apple, and directly deposits it on the flower of the main crop, but due to pollen transfer that occurs within the hive itself when bees which have been working flowers of diverse plant species rub against each other. An ongoing project involving scientists from WSU, USDARS, and the Washington Tree Fruit Research Commission seeks to develop a predictive model of honeybee foraging activity under various weather conditions. With this background, here are some specific recommendations and information regarding the use of rented honeybee hives to pollinate tree fruit orchards in Washington. For most crops, deploy your hives as bloom is starting to open, sometime between popcorn stage and 10% open bloom for crops that are not as attractive to bees, like pear. Delaying until 25% open bloom may be helpful in preventing bees from finding other crops to work. Hives should be removed when the orchard no longer has viable pollen and or all flowers have dried up. Move hives only between dusk and dawn when foraging activity is minimal. Place hives in an open, warm, sunny area with good airflow for optimal foraging. Hives may be clustered in drops of 12 to 20 hives, three to five pallets. Depending on the crop, using one to two hives per acre is adequate for most orchards. Distribute hives throughout the orchard, bearing in mind that bees prefer to work within a half a mile of their hive. Bees need a lot of water to help regulate the temperature and humidity within the hive. Pans of water with burlap draped over the edge to prevent drowning can be very effective if the water is refreshed every few days. Dribbling sprinklers or drip emitters can also be effective provided they are not carrying any chemicals or fertilizers. 
Bees may also use standing water, so growers should be careful not to leave puddles when mixing chemicals for sprays or fertilizing. As mentioned above, dandelions provide an important source of nectar and pollen to support hive health, so growers should consider leaving them in the field. In fact, cultivation of a flowering crop in or near the orchard may actually promote fruit set. Be careful with application of pesticides in these areas. Only when pesticides known to be harmful to bees will be sprayed to the cover crop should these areas be mowed prior to placing beehives. Counting bees coming in and out of the hive may be instructive, but doesn't give a full picture of the hive health. The surest method is to crack open a hive and examine individual frames. A healthy hive should have bees covering five or six frames in both the top and bottom boxes. You should also see evidence of developing brood, those are medium brown cell coverings, in the frames. If you're not comfortable opening hives, ask your beekeeper to do so. A random sampling of 5-10% to 10 of your hives should provide a good indicator of the quality of your bees. Always follow label directions. If there is any warning about bee toxicity, do not use that material when bees are present. Broad-spectrum insecticides such as organophosphates, carbamates, neonicotinoids, and many pyrethroids are known to be very hard on bee colonies. If possible, it is best not to spray or chemigate with any materials at all while hives are in your orchard. But if you must, try to do so at night or early in the morning before bees become active. Foraging stimulants have mixed reviews with some support for the use of brood pheromone to increase seed set in carrots. But in blueberry and tree fruits, use of Nasanov pheromone has shown little or no benefit. Orchards designed with adequately distributed compatible pollinizers in a pollinator-friendly agroecosystem design should not need any pollen supplement, either in the form of pollen inserts or floral bouquets. <laughs> uh, generally speaking, honeybees have jobs to do and aren't too concerned about what humans are doing around them until those people present a threat to the colony. Move calmly and slowly around the hives and try to approach from the sides if necessary. Avoid wearing dark colors such as red or black and refrain from using noisy equipment like chainsaws and weed eaters around the hive. The purchase of a bee veil might be a good investment if you need to work near the hive or even better, a smoker. A few puffs of white smoke can help calm bees considerably. Finally, remember that angry bees can fly faster than you can run in a straight line. So try ducking around. <laughs> So try ducking around trees and bushes. I'm sorry, I'm just envisioning this all happening. So try ducking around trees and bushes to escape the worker bees defending their colony. Thanks for joining me for another uh, UMass IPM Fruit Loop. I do apologize, I never did find a place to drop a May the 4th joke, but, well, there's always next week for bad jokes. At any rate, the next Healthy Fruit will be published on or about May 11, 2021. In the meantime, feel free to contact any of the UMass Fruit team if you have any fruit-related production questions. Until then, stay safe and be well.